on Sunday uh, evenings and the influence that we might have uniquely on our family units and on those who are coming behind us. Uh, these principles also apply to our ministry as a church because as we try to build up families and help them have the tools that they need and as we think about our own relationship with God as our Father and how these things apply, it all flows together and it goes together in the Word of God and in the plan of God. This evening, I want to focus on shaping your child's heart in parenting. And our verse is going to be primarily from Proverbs 4 and verse 23. Proverbs 4 and verse 23. We last thought about the formative nature of parenting. And I talked to you about how in the formative nature of parenting, we are to be a godly example to our children in the things that we teach them directly uh, we're to be a godly example to our children in our character, and this is true in the Christian life, that we don't want there to be a duplicity or a hypocrisy about our lives. We want to be genuine so that our family members are in a position of what you see is what you get. We're the same all the time. We're not trying to put on a face when we're at church or in another setting and then something entirely different at home. And then we're to be a godly example to our children in times of difficulties as well because your faith really surfaces and is evidenced by how you respond to difficulties that come your way in life. The goal of formative parenting is to shape our children so they will be conformed to the image of Jesus. And you remember I told you this also is the goal of Christian discipleship, that we would be shaped, molded, formed, into the image of Jesus as his disciples. And I want to go a step further in the formative nature of parenting with a focus on shaping your child's heart uh, as a parent and as a family member. And we want to read here Proverbs 4 in verse 23. It's a short verse, but here's what it says. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Uh, Solomon indicated in the Proverbs uh, the importance of keeping the heart for wisdom and also guarding it against the ways of the wicked. When he speaks here of the importance of keeping your heart, it implies that the heart is worth keeping and that it is worth guarding. The heart is a reservoir in a sense because it's where we take in the things from the outside it's where we process them and really spiritually uh, think through them. And the Bible has all sorts of warnings about the heart. We are warned not to have a double heart, uh, which would give us a, a duplicity that I was talking about here just a moment ago. Uh, we are told to warn uh, and warned against a hard heart so that our consciences might be seared and our hearts would be hard against the things of the Lord. Uh, we're warned about having a proud heart and the danger and the trouble that pride brings in our lives if we're not careful. Uh, we're also told about what happens when we have an unbelieving heart or a cold heart or even an unclean heart. So the heart is important. It's at the center of our being. And we're to keep it or to guard it with all vigilance, or the word might be translated as well, diligence. And what that tells us is that it must not be very easy to guard the heart. It must not be very easy to keep the heart. Otherwise, we wouldn't be given all these different warnings uh, in the scripture toward it. Uh, Charles Bridges wrote years ago, as Satan keeps special watch here, so we must keep special watch as well. If the citadel, he's speaking of the heart, is taken, the whole town must surrender. If the heart is captured, the whole person Affections, desires, motives, and pursuits will be handed over. So we keep the heart with all vigilance or diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. There's a reward to the one that keeps the heart and keeps it for wisdom, in that life flows from the heart, like a pleasant and a bountiful spring. It's the wellspring of life in that the capacity to live with joy and with purpose, uh, ultimately, comes from within and not from your outer circumstances. We know that outer circumstances can change. 
and circumstances can shift from day to day even. But when the heart is finding its joy and its confidence in God, then that can be a solid foundation uh, for our children and for us as well. The foundation for shaping your child's heart in parenting is to shape your own heart. You can't disciple others unless you are growing as a disciple. So to keep your heart, you have to be growing in prayer, in the word, and in your walk with Jesus. Or to state it another way, we cannot lead our children or our grandchildren where we are not willing to go ourselves. And the key is to parent not for external performance, but so that your child might embrace the gospel and be molded to be like Jesus. This is our goal. Uh, We might get compliance with external performance for a while. Or if you just happen to have a compliant child or grandchild, uh, it might work or at least seemingly work on the surface. But it's going to break down at some point if it's not in their heart where they're embracing Jesus for themselves and they're desiring to be more like him. So let me suggest some ways to you that we can do that, how we can shape our child's heart as we go forward this evening. Number one, to shape your child's heart, uh, display unconditional love. Display unconditional love. Now let me work through this just a little bit to tell you what it's not so that we can understand what it is. The Bible says in Galatians 5 and verse 22 that the fruit of the Spirit is love. Now, this is a God-like love, and God is love, so it's not just something he does or expresses. It's his nature and his being. So much so that God loves the unlovable, and God loves the unlovely, not because they deserve it. And by the way, that's us a lot of times. It was certainly us before we got saved. Um, Not because we deserve it, but because of who he is. And if we're honest about it, we'll say that this kind of love does not come easily for us. It doesn't come naturally for us because of our fallen nature. We can share, however, what God has given to us. We can be a conduit of the love of God. And this is the love that God has poured out uh, into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, Paul writes in Romans 5, who has been given to us when we became God's children. It's important to understand what conditional, unconditional love is and what unconditional love is not. So let me just preface this here. Unconditional love does not mean affirming and encouraging unbiblical and ungodly beliefs and behavior. Sometimes parents and grandparents think that in order to show unconditional love to their children and their grandchildren, that means that they have to affirm and agree with and celebrate whatever it is that their kids or their grandkids are engaged in. When in fact, unconditional love may mean that you're doing just the opposite. Your love for the person, the essence of who they are, is not predicated on what they do or what they don't do, on how they perform or how they fail to perform. It's based on who they are. But when you're seeing something that is unhealthy or unholy in their lives, you're calling it for what it is, and yet still loving the person. Now, I understand in the culture that we live in that that's been bifurcated to the point that most people think it's virtually impossible, but I don't think it is from a biblical standpoint. There was a psychologist by the name of Jim Taylor that actually argued against unconditional love in parenting, and here's how he sets it up. He says, the basic idea seems uh, reasonable. You love your children for who they are, regardless of what they do. And he says, as recently as the 1950s, conditional love was the dominant approach to parenting. He said it was the way way to maintain control. Now, some of y'all are old enough to know that, some of y'all might have parented that way, you're that old, but some of you might be old enough to know that that was the kind of parenting you received, that the love was expressed based on whatever you did or you didn't do. And he's arguing how, to, how this has progressed. He said, but something happened in the 1960s. People decided to raise their children 
not with a love if you obey and behave mentality, but a love without limits. Parents cut the limits and the pendulum swung too far. And he says the grand experiment failed. And as a result of it, many children became lazy and disinterested and out of control. Unfettered freedom, lack of accountability, and no consequences brought chaos. Now, he argues that there is some confusion about what unconditional love is with which I would concur. I would define unconditional love in parenting in this way. It is love for your children because they've been created in the image of God. They've been given to you as a gift from God, and God has a purpose for their life. Because you love them, you want what is right and biblical and holy and healthy for them. And when they are engaging in things that are contrary to any of those, you love them enough to warn them. And that's the love that God the Father emulates for us. His love for us is not based on our performance. It's based on who he is. But because he loves us, he wants what is best for us. And this is a critically important distinction. And this is what I mean when I say that we should display unconditional love. David Prince, who is a preacher, told a story about a family who adopted an older child from a terrible situation in an orphanage from another country. And he said when they brought this child home, one of the things that they told her was that she was expected to clean her room every day. When she heard about that responsibility, she fixated on it and saw it as a way that she could earn her family's love. In other words, she isolated the responsibility and applied it to her existing frame of thinking that was shaped by her life in the orphanage. So every morning when her parents came in her room, it was immaculate. She'd sit on the bed and would say, my room is clean. Can I stay? Do you still love me? And her words broke her new parents' hearts. Eventually, the girl learned to hear her parents' words as their unconditionally beloved child who would never be forsaken and not as a visitor trying to earn her place in the family. And after she knew that she was an inseparable part of their family story, even correction and discipline did not cause her to question her family's love for her. She understood correction and discipline as a symbol that she belonged to the family. And this is what I'm talking about when it comes to unconditional love. Your child does not need to come from the perspective that they're trying to earn their place in your family or that somehow if they do certain things just right, then you're going to love them more or they're going to be accepted more. No, you love them and you accept them simply because they've been created in the image of God. They've been given to your family and God has a purpose and a plan for their life and you want to help them find that and you want to love them as they go down that path. Second, to shape your child's heart, invest time in the relationship. Invest time in the relationship. And again, I think this applies to both parents and grandparents. We've looked already at Ephesians 6 and verse 4, where it says, Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. But I want to draw back on an idea here just for a moment. Uh, the phrase there, bring them up, is also translated as nurture them. What does it mean to nurture? It means to care for and encourage the growth and the development of something. We can think about it from an agrarian standpoint where we're nurturing a plant or we're nurturing a crop. Well, in this sense, familial, in a familial sense, we are nurturing our children. And your goal as a parent is not to nurture your children first toward educational or financial or vocational success, not that those things aren't important or aren't a part of a healthy, productive life, but you're wanting to nurture them toward Jesus Christ. So this brings us back to this idea that keeps coming to the surface 
in this particular series, and that is you have a primary role as a disciple maker. And part of the Great Commission is to make disciples of all nations. And if part of the Great Commission is to make disciples of all nations, then does it not make sense and follow that you are to first be a disciple maker in your own home? This is so important. And that requires investing time. So we invest time in the relationship in the physical realm. We think about shelter and food and clothing. All those things are are obvious. But it's important to spend time with them to encourage holistic health. And there's a physical aspect of that. You just got to be with them. You just, you got to spend time and invest time in the relationship. You're also investing time in the intellectual realm, meaning that you can affect and shape your child's capacity to think um, and to think critically through the lens of a biblical worldview. And it amazes me the age that we have moved into, particularly with uh, the near obsession with media and, and technology and all the things that go along with that, how little parents and children actually communicate and how little time there actually is spent in the home in many instances. And it takes time to shape their thinking. It takes time to build motivation in their lives and to encourage curiosity. And one of the most practical ways that we can shape their minds, especially as children are younger, is to read to them while they're younger. And some of you have had children that you've been blessed where they've progressed well. Uh, You could give testimony tonight that one of the things you did just at a base level was you spent time with your kids and you spent time reading to them and helping them to begin to think and to understand things for themselves. Don't think that that's not going to pay off. Don't get discouraged and think, well, is this really helping or not? Oh, it's helping. And if you just keep investing that time and keep uh, planting those seeds in their hearts and keep nurturing them, uh, then God will bless and uh, he will definitely help you in, in that regard. You also have to invest time in the relationship in the emotional realm, not just physical and intellectual, but emotional. Did you know that children learn how to address and process emotions and regulate themselves in, a, in an emotionally healthy way? Uh, primarily, I'd say, from their home life. And that's why we see such a crisis in many cases in our school systems and in the public sphere is because kids don't know how to process emotion. They don't know how to regulate themselves. They don't know how to deal with situations in life. You're going to teach those kids that you have or those grandkids that are around you Uh, negative lessons and positive lessons. And the reason you're going to teach them negative lessons is because all of us are imperfect. All of us. Every parent is imperfect. Every home is imperfect. Every child has a story to tell about how their home was imperfect. Even if they love their parents and they love the situation they were in and they're blessed and, and they're appreciative and grateful and all that stuff, listen, they still got some stories to tell. Every child does in every home. But you want the positive ones to outweigh the negative ones, and you want to help them learn how to process emotion and especially deal with crisis in an emotionally healthy way. And then of uh, utmost importance is to invest time in the relationship in the spiritual realm. A spiritual focus helps children know that the world does not revolve around them, but rather what God is doing through them. And children learn by example. If you're setting a good example for them by spending quality time together, they're more likely to adopt those behaviors in other relationships in their lives. So if you're helping them kind of just form themselves and shape their hearts, it's not only going to be something that's going to be positive and a blessing in your family unit, but they're going to learn things like how to be married later on and how to deal with children themselves and how to interact in a vocation if they're out in the workplace in vocation and how to treat their neighbor and how to process information. There's so many things that are truly formed by what kind of an example we give uh, in our families. 
and simple things like spending time together and interacting with each other, sharing, uh, sharing with one another, showing kindness, having fun, enjoying each other's company. All of that serves to build confidence in children, and it strengthens their place in the world. It helps them develop positive relationships and behaviors, and it encourages communication. And also, ultimately, as your children age and your grandchildren get older, you're building friendship with them so that when the relationship changes, your investment in their lives and their investment in your life is not over. It's just maturing and growing and being developed in a different way. Number three, to shape your child's heart, take interest in them personally. To shape your child's heart, take interest in them personally. Now, another verse that we've referenced as we've gone along is uh, Proverbs 22 and verse 6, which virtually every Christian or church-going parent knows or has heard. In the first part of it, it says, train up a child in the way he should go. A lot of parents have held on to this verse, praying that their kids will either, number one, not depart from the faith, or number two, will come back to it when they do. But there's a whole lot more to this verse than meets the eye. Each child is an individual. And when it says, train up a child in the way he should go, it's indicating to us that that child has been created with a God-given personality, a God-given uniqueness, God-given natural abilities, and if they're redeemed, spiritual gifts as well. And God wants something from their life, and you have the opportunity to invest in that. And we need to make the effort to train them in the way that they should go so that they have an opportunity to take the step of faith and see where they fit in to the plan of God. Now, you know if you've got children of any age at all that no two children are alike. Every child, two children, three children, whatever number of children you have in a home or in in a family, they're going to have unique differences. They're going to look at things differently. They're going to process things differently. They're going to handle stress differently. They're going to like different things. They're just different. And one of the mistakes that parents sometimes make is they try to use the exact same template for all of their kids uh, rather than taking an interest in their children personally in helping shape them to be who God has created them to be. When God designs a child, he puts together their unique temperament blend and abilities even before they are physically born. And when a person is born again, then they're given those spiritual gifts with which to serve God. And these things make your child unique. As parents, it's our job to watch for these as our children develop and mature so that we can know the differences in how God has made them. So let me give an example. Uh, Some children are very strong-willed. They're all strong-willed to a degree, but if you've got a strong-willed child, you know what I'm saying here. Some children are particularly strong-willed. Other kids are pretty compliant. They go along to get along. You tell them to do something. You don't have to tell them very many times, maybe just once. They're just kind of going with the flow. They're happy. They want to make other people happy, and they're a compliant type of child. Some children are very sensitive, and the least little thing, they react to it very strongly. Other children are very tough, and they have a very strong exterior, and they're not sensitive like that. Some children are very energetic. They never stop. Others are more laid back and easygoing. Some are very quick-tempered. And they get fired up very quickly about little things. Other children, they're really difficult to rattle. And they're very difficult to upset. Some are intellects. Others are creatives. They all have unique strengths and weaknesses. And what we need to do is be a student of our children and get to know them personally. So if I were to put you on the spot tonight... As a good parent, you would be able to answer a question, something along these lines. What are the likes and dislikes of your individual child? What are the strengths and the weaknesses of your individual child? What are the hopes and the dreams of your individual child? 
What are they afraid of? What makes them happy? And we could go through a litany of questions, but you'd be able to tell me pretty quickly because you know them. You've become a student of them. And I would just encourage you grandparents to get to know your grandchildren at that level. Don't think that the work is done and they're the responsibility of the parent now. Get to know them and be close enough to them that you're taking a personal interest in them uh, and really encouraging them in how God has shaped and molded them and what he can do uh, with their lives. Number four, to shape your child's heart, speak words of kindness. To shape your child's heart, speak words of kindness. The verse I want to give you here is Proverbs 16 and verse 24. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. There is wonderful power in our words to bring blessing and pleasantness to others. And apparently in ancient biblical culture, nothing was as sweet as honey that was honey directly from the honeycomb. And the illustration that we're given in Proverbs is that pleasant words can be just as sweet and wonderful. Encouraging and pleasant words bring enjoyment to the person, mind, body, and soul. Proverbs 18 and verse 21 says, the tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Let me share this little piece with you. It's, uh, many of you have probably heard this before. It's by an anonymous author, but it speaks to this very subject. If a child lives with criticism, she learns to condemn. If a child lives with hostility, he learns to fight. If a child lives with ridicule, she learns to be shy. If a child lives with shame, he learns to feel guilty. If a child lives with tolerance, she learns to be patient. If a child lives with encouragement, he learns confidence. If a child lives with praise, she learns to appreciate. If a child lives with fairness, he learns justice. If a child lives with security, she learns to have faith. And if a child lives with approval, he learns to like himself. If a child lives with acceptance and friendship, she learns to find love in the world. Let me say this as straightforwardly as I possibly can. We can build our children and our grandchildren up with our words, or we can tear them down. And a lot of times there's not much space in between. It's one or the other. So let's think about the contrast of building up versus tearing down. Words like, I love you. God loves you. Now, we've gotten a little bit better, I think, in this generation of actually voicing, I love you. God loves you. But I know generations that preceded mine, especially, I've known people who went their entire lives, and their testimony was maybe at the end of, the li end of life, they heard their parents say to them directly, I love you. Can you imagine that? Maybe that's been your experience. Should never be the experience of our children. And it's not just when they're little. They need to hear it as much when they're 22 as they do when they're two. That you love them and that means something to them. Words like, or phrases like, God has a plan and purpose for your life. That makes a difference. You did well with that. See, one of the things sometimes that we do is we set these unrealistic expectations almost of perfectionism to where they've got to measure up to a certain grade or they've got to measure up to a certain accomplishment or they've got to measure up to some status in life and they're constantly thinking they're never enough. It's never enough. I always need to do just a little bit more. I need to be a little bit better. And it's okay to say you did well with that. Even if it's maybe not the very best that it could have been, if there was effort put in it, you did well with it. Or what about things like, I am so proud of you. Some of y'all as adult parents of adult children that might be even in their 40s or their 50s, something you need to do with your children is you need to tell them, I love you. With no qualifications, just, I love you, son. 
I love you, daughter. You need to say things from the heart like, I'm proud of you. I'm thankful for the person you've become. And those are life-giving words. Or when they're facing a challenge, especially when they're coming up, you're able to say to them, you're strong and you can do this. Even if you're thinking in the moment, I'm not sure you're strong enough and I'm not sure you can do this. You tell them you are strong and you can do this. And the reason you can do it is because we're with you and you can make it happen. Or things like, don't be afraid. You know how many times the, that we're told in the scripture not to be afraid or to be of good courage? Time and time again. If our Heavenly Father tells us time and time again that we're not to be afraid, to fear not, and He tells us to take courage, then our children need to hear that as well. Now, let's contrast these with things that tear down. You're stupid. You never do anything right. You will never amount to anything. Why can't you be like fill in the blank? Maybe it's a brother, it's a sister, or it's somebody else that you're setting up this comparison trap to. Why can't you be like them? Or you're an embarrassment to this family. These things tear down. Now, again, let's go back just for a moment to this idea of unconditional love and how do you deal with poor decisions, bad behavior, wrong choices, wrong direction, and all that stuff. You deal with it by identifying the behavior and the problem itself at hand, but you are not fundamentally trying to cut the heart out of the person that you're addressing it with. That's how you deal with it. So you're dealing with the fact of a bad decision, a poor decision. You say, this is a really poor decision. This is why it's a poor decision. This is not good for you. It's not healthy. It's not holy. It's not going to lead you to a place that you want to be. And because I love you and because I'm proud of you and because I care for you, I'm giving it to you straight. And I want you to know that this is a ditch that if you run the car off over there in the ditch, you're going to tear the car up and it's going to be some consequences that are going to go with it spiritually, emotionally, and every other way. That's how you do it. Because if you cut to the heart of the identity of the person themselves, then you're going to have trouble and it's going to damage and wound the child or the grandchild um, emotionally. I want to share a story with you uh, from a man by the name of uh, Mark Mitchell who actually told the story. And as the story goes, and I think this illustrates this well, in June of 1992, which by the way happened to be when we got married, um, Jim Davidson and Mike Price climbed Mount Rainier. On the way down, the two climbers fell 80 feet through a snow-covered bridge into a glacial crevice. It was a pitch-black, ice-walled crack in the massive glacier that covered Mount Rainier. Mike Price died. In his book, The Ledge, Jim Davidson tells the story of his miraculous survival and courageous climb out of that crevice. Throughout the book, Jim reflects back to his childhood and his young adult years, describing specifically his relationship with his dad. He said as early as he could remember, his father had shown him what he considered an almost reckless confidence in his son. Jim worked for his father painting high, steep-pitched roofs and electrical towers as early as the age of 12. The work terrified his mother, but Jim's father kept communicating his belief that Jim could accomplish great things if he pressed through adversity and kept going. As Jim found himself there bloodied and bruised on a two-foot-wide snow ledge next to the body of his climbing partner, he heard the encouraging voice of his father. With minimal gear and no experience in ice climbing at that level, Jim spent the next five hours climbing out, battling fatigue and the crumbling ice and snow that threatened to bury him. And throughout his ordeal, Jim kept recalling the words of his dad. And five grueling hours later, thanks to his father's words that he had spoken to him in his growing up years, Jim climbed out of the crevice 
and to safety. The illustration goes on to say that our success as fathers, and I would apply this to mothers as well, depends a whole lot on the words that we speak to our children. Few fathers will ever have the value of their words tested so dramatically as Jim's father. For us, the test comes in small doses over a long period of time. But sooner or later, the effectiveness of our words will be evident. I encourage you to speak life-giving words. And it might be that right now you've got a rocky relationship with a child. It might be a smaller child or it might be a young adult or even an older adult. And you don't really know what to do. You don't know how to solve the problems you've got at the moment. I just encourage you just start with the fact that you thank God that he brought them into your family. You love them without condition. You want what's good for them and express your care and concern for that child or that grandchild. And you never know how far that'll go or how much it'll be valued. Number five, to shape your child's heart, adjust your methods as your child grows and matures. Now, this is probably a shortcoming for a lot of parents in that what works when they're two is not going to work the same when they're 12. And what works when they're 12 is not the same thing that's going to work when they're 18 and so on. One psychologist warned against placing too much pressure on children to achieve because you might make your child think that their performance is more important than them being a person. And he advocated really bringing the worlds of children and adults together into a process of shaping the children and helping them as you grow together. And when you see a mutual growth process for parents and children, what you're going to find is a parenting technique that is adaptable. And at some point, parenting becomes and family life becomes an exchange of ideas and emotions and even power as children and parents learn how to respect and to influence one another. And in family living, we can have give and take in the meaning and the purpose of our lives. And both parents and children can discover their strengths and weaknesses and their value in service to the Lord. And for example, if you start even at the youngest of ages, a baby and a parent interact um, at different times and in different ways, but they're being nurtured even from the beginning. Those early stages are critically important. And then as the family strengthens and grows, that relationship strengthens and grows with it. And that family unit uh, is able to adapt and to adjust as time goes along. Now, I think a particular area, and I'm going to speak to this because I know there's few of you here in the room that are in the same stage that, that we are um, in this stage of parenting. One of the breakdowns, I think, sometimes for parents is things might have gone pretty well up until they got to that adolescence point, or they might have even gone pretty well until they got to that teenage point and they went out kind of on their own. But a lot of times parents really struggle with that changeover from those teenage years to them being independent adults and really launching out into life. And we have a tendency to treat our children the same way when they're in their early 20s as we did when they were 16. And that's not going to be very effective. We've got to learn to grow with them. And that's painful for us as parents. That's challenging for us to know how to do that. And how far do you push? And when do you back off? And how much independence do you give? And when you say that was a poor decision, there's all these things that are kind of going on. And it's those dynamics that you've got to pray for a lot of wisdom to be able to do that effectively. And none of us are going to navigate it perfectly. But I think the spirit of the whole thing is that we're trying to do it in a way that honors God. Um, and there was a, a psychologist by the name of Ellen Galinsky that proposed six parental stages to coincide with different developmental stages. And I don't agree with these perfectly, but I think they, they are pretty much in keeping with what we would see with parenting. And as a rough guide, here's what the stages are. The first she calls image making, which is the actual pregnancy stage where parents are preparing for the arrival of the baby. And at the same time, 
they're starting kind of to form images of how their life is going to change. So you know this, and you'll find this particularly humorous if you have uh, little babies or little children. Um, everybody tells you before you have those little babies and children, your life is going to change. And you're like, yeah, I probably will. Well, you don't know what that means until you experience it. it it's like you, you can tell people that, and I'm not saying it's even unhealthy to tell younger people, your life's about to dramatically change. But listen, it's about to dramatically change. And if you're in those early stages, you know this to be true. You're finding your role as a parent. Um, you're thinking about how you're going to cope with the new responsibilities and the challenges of a baby. And then you move from the image making or the pregnancy stage to number two, what Galinsky calls the nurturing stage of birth to 18 to 24 months, where parents are forming bonds of attachment learning to balance the needs of the baby with work and social life and family and household needs. And then number three is the authoritative stage. This is ages two to five. And parents try to establish boundaries and rules for their children. Uh, rules are pretty much black and white during that stage. Uh, however, parents are still trying to attempt to reason with the child and tell them why they're doing it but they have enough authority and power over the child that they can apply that authority uh, pretty directly. Number four, Galinsky calls it the interpretive stage, and she identifies that as age five through adolescence, where parents are starting to teach their children about perspectives, how to interact with the behaviors of other people, how to react to life. Uh, they're learning to cope with peer dynamics and peer pressure and peer comparisons and establishing a role in the world for themselves and parents are helping them learn how to navigate in and out of those social conditions. And then number five, she identifies it as the interdependent stage. And she says this is during adolescence. Um, this can be a difficult time for parents in adolescence because uh, the family's trying to find that balance I was just referencing between freedom and independence and uh, you're trying to figure out when's it okay to let them have the final say about something, if it's a good final say. Uh, disagreements might rise during this time because they've got their own mouth and their own opinions and their own ideas. And you're trying to navigate effective and respectful communication that's really important during that. And then number six is what she identifies as the departure stage. And that's late adolescence to adulthood. The departure stage is when the child reaches full or almost complete independence, uh, notwithstanding the need, she says, for paying a bill or two. Uh, and it does not necessarily coincide with the young adult physically leaving the home, depending on how that transition goes. But parents and children are learning new roles, and they're learning how to communicate uh, in time at times when you have equal footing. And it can also be a sad time for parents because we're redefining our identities and we're also uh, trying to rediscover our, our own uh, individual pursuits. So she gives all of those stages just as an understanding to help you look at your child, look at your grandchildren and say, okay, that makes a little bit more sense. This is basically the stage we're in and we don't want to stay in that stage. So let me remind you, I've said this before in the series, but I want to say it again. You are raising your children, ideally, to release them. You want them to be able to be a productive, functioning, contributing member of society. And you want to do whatever you can to give them that opportunity. Regardless of how it works out, you want to lay the foundation where they have that opportunity. And the best way to do that is as you adjust your methods through those stages, and you're getting ready to launch them to take responsibility for themselves. I was talking to a, a friend of ours, Danny Rumpel and I were actually recently uh, in an event that we had, and um, I might have referenced this actually a couple weeks back, but I want to I build a little bit further on the analogy because it fits this particular point. And uh, he was talking to us about his adult kids that are just a few years ahead of, of our kids, and Here's the analogy that he used. He said, there came a point when I had to move, and he used a sports analogy. He said, I had to move from being an owner to a fan. And he said, what that meant was that 
I was able to say things, but I was more from a distance. I'm cheering them on. I'm encouraging them. I'm trying to be a blessing to them. I'm trying to help them navigate troubles when they, when they have troubles. But, I, but I'm not in the same position that I was as an owner when they were younger and I had more control over things. I think it's a really good illustration, but I think it breaks down at one point. I think there's another step I would add in here. I think as you think about methods changing as children age, the analogy of the sports uh, analogy of being an owner, an agent, and a fan actually works better. And here's what I mean by that. When they're younger and you have more direct control over them, and I mean that in the healthiest of ways, um, you're the team owner. Like you're making the decisions. You're calling the shots. You've got the final say in everything. Well, they get older, teenage years, young adult years. They're not fully launched yet. You're still helping them with stuff. You're still trying to get them fully out there in life. Maybe they're not married yet and they're seeking to be married or whatever. And you're more of an agent at that point. Okay, let's just face it. They're going to do what they're going to do. They're, they're going to make decisions they're going to make. Some of them are going to be good. Some of them are not going to be as good. And you're an agent at that point. And what does the agent do? The agent says, that would be a really poor decision for your career. That would be a really bad move for your life. And you're speaking truth into their lives. But ultimately, they're going to do what they're going to do. But you're the agent at that point. The goal would be that they're out there fully functioning on the field of play. They're fully engaged in the game of life. And now you're a fan. You're cheering them on. I'm proud of the person that you've become. And you're a blessing to them. And maybe you put a little input in here and there. As the Lord gives you the opportunity, you provide some wisdom. But the relationship changes. So I like that analogy with that middle piece a lot better from an owner to an agent to a fan. We currently are agents in our home. And we're hoping that we can learn how to be good fans in the not-too-distant future. But we want to be able to adjust and move along our methods as the Lord uh, gives us that opportunity. And then finally, I would say to you, this is just a closing statement. Keep your children, your child or your children close. Keep them close. I had a conversation with another friend of mine who has children about the age our children are a little while back. And he's had some, some rocky times. He came up out of a ministry family and he's in ministry and he's trying to help these kids. He's got navigate an urban environment where they live. And there's a lot of difficulties he's dealing with. And we were just talking about like, what's the, what's the single best piece of advice we could give each other right now in dealing with kids at this age. And he said basically the same thing that I would say to you, keep your children close. That's your best strategy. If you can keep them close to you where they will communicate with you and listen to you, and even if you don't get immediate feedback, but you know they respect what you're saying at least, and you're able to speak truth into their lives, keep them as close as you possibly can so that you uh, maintain that opportunity to do that. Uh, I want to come back to the verse in Proverbs 4 and verse 23. Now, some of you might have seen the book uh, uh, shepherding your child's heart. It's been out for a long time. It's in the biblical counseling realm. Um, but there's a particular section in that book where he speaks to getting to the heart of behavior. And it's basically in the introductory part, introductory part. But he says, the scripture teaches that the heart is the control center for life. A person's life is a reflection of his heart. And then he quotes Proverbs 4 and verse 23. And he says, the word picture here is graphic. The heart is a well from which all the issues of life gush forth. This theme is restated elsewhere in the Bible. And the behavior a person exhibits is an expression of the overflow of the heart. And then he says you could picture it like this. The heart determines behavior. What you say and do expresses the orientation of the heart. Mark 7 and verse 21 states it well. From within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. These evils in action and speech come from where? They come from the heart. And what your children say and do is a reflection of what is in their hearts. So I give you this as I close. 
Don't get sidetracked primarily by behavior. Stay focused on the heart. Don't get sidetracked primarily by behavior. Stay focused on the heart. And this principle will apply through all of the stages. You're trying to get to their heart. Because if you can get to their heart, that's where their life is going to be shaped. And we want to shape their heart. We want to shepherd their heart. Let's bow our heads together as we pray. Father, I thank you tonight that you've given us this incredible privilege to shape the heart of our children. There's grandparents in here as well who are still investing and shaping the hearts of their grandchildren. And God, no matter what our experience has been, whether it's been uh, splendidly successful or uh, very difficult in a challenging way, we count this responsibility seriously. And we know also that you're the God of new beginnings. So whatever we're dealing with, whatever challenges in front of us, whatever disappointment we might face, Lord, with your help, we can navigate it. I pray for each family that's represented in our church family. Lord, may we be parents who are disciple makers and who desire to help our children in a way that honors you, in a way that will be healthy and holy for them in their lives. And I pray that we would see great successes from our children, from our families, and there would be a testimony of your grace in our lives. And I pray especially for the newer parents among us and the newer parents in our church family. And there's so many right now, Lord, we pray that this will be a place where their homes are encouraged, their lives are strengthened, and where they're equipped to be God-honoring parents that would lay a good foundation for their children and lead their children in the things that would be pleasing to you. And Father, we pray your blessings now as we uh, leave this place. And we ask, Lord, that you'd give us wisdom and power to apply these things to our lives and to our homes. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.